Maverick News presents The Rick Walker Show Defrag Your Mind Whoa! Whoa! I just have a thing on my face again. Let's get the thing off my face. Hang on. Working on it. Technical glitch. Oh, that's pretty scary. Hello, Maverick family. Welcome back. How's everybody tonight? Good. I don't know what anybody said. I'm not, I'm not even looking in the chat. Anybody in there? Isabel, hello. Hello, Anesty. Is this, uh, I don't know, this, uh, what's going on here? Normally, I see a lot more people in the chat. It looks like we're connected. Everything's okay. I guess we're all right. I don't know what's happening out there. We'll have to see if uh, people come in or not. Normally, I see a lot of people in the chat, but maybe something's not firing properly tonight. I don't know. I'm on a different YouTube channel over there. Well, I'm just going to go with it. That's what I'm going to do. And I guess you guys can come along for the ride, whoever is here tonight. And we do have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Um... Let me just check to make sure we're running over here. Yeah, we're rocking and rolling on Rumble, so that's okay. That's the most important thing. Hello, everyone over on Rumble. I'm going to type hello in the chat. Hello, Maverick family. Many news stories to work through tonight. Uh, some of them, actually, I, I think are a little bit on the... Uh, disturbing side the thing that i found most disturbing is this story about a funeral home with about i think they found 189 bodies decomposing inside this funeral home they've made some arrests i'll tell you about that uh ivanka trump testified today in the civil fraud trial the government of Canada, senators commenting today on the use of psychedelic drugs to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and provide therapy to veterans during this Veterans Week. Interesting, isn't it, how these days we no longer have, like, just Remembrance Day. Now we have Remembrance or Veterans Week. Everything's turned into a week. A day is never enough for anything anymore. And that's okay with me if you want to honor veterans for an entire week. In fact, you know what I do is I always have a poppy in my car. 365 days a year. I stick it up uh, near my sun visor. Sometimes I have more than one. Um... I got that from my dad. He uh, he always used to do that. I don't know if he still does or not. He probably does. I haven't looked in his van lately. 
Ever since I was a kid, poppies by the sun visor. Always. Um, cyber attack in Australia. Cyber attack here on the home front. Bring you up to date on what's happening with that cyber attack at hospitals in this region of Canada. Update uh, story from yesterday. Um, Dutch government supplying parts for F-35 fighter jets despite, in spite of concerns about possible war crimes being committed by Israel. And $173 million to Medicago by the federal government and not one single syringe of vaccine to show for it. All that and Trudeau talking about a rise in racist focused hate on both sides of the Israel Palestine war. Don't go away. When we come back on the other side, we'll dig into all of that and more right here on the Maverick News Channel. Greetings, brave Mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow. Maybe too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. Oh, yeah, I also forgot to mention that uh, out in the province of Alberta in Canada, the premier has announced plans to make major changes to the healthcare system. Danielle Smith. We'll get to that tonight as well. So why don't we start with this healthcare stuff then, shall we? Um... Senators in Canada today did, they held a news conference to talk about psychedelics for therapeutic use to treat veterans and others for post-traumatic stress disorder. What we're talking about here is administering LSD and ecstasy. Opinions on this have been changing, evolving for quite a long time. And now we're at a point where governments are really taking a close look at this. Canada, once again, on the leading edge 
of this. To all of our American viewers, take note. This is coming your way. Now, I'm an older guy, and I have concerns. Maybe it's because I'm just a tad biased. Maybe I, my thinking is just a little old-fashioned on this. But as I sit back and look at it, I'm thinking, yep, psychedelics for people with mental illness brought to you by the same people who brought you medical assistance in dying. What could possibly go wrong? But here they are. Let's listen to, uh, let's tune in. We can dip in on this news conference with these senators in uh, the nation's capital of Canada, Ottawa, Ontario. And here we go, folks. Let's pick it up now. And here we go. Yep. Being here and uh, good morning. I am uh, not going to speak long. Uh, and I'll turn it over to Senator Boisvenu after I'm done. Uh, so my name is Senator Dave Richards, and I am the chair of the Senate Subcommittee on uh, Veteran Affairs. And I'm joined by Senator Pierre Boisvenu, the deputy chair of this committee. And I will begin by providing a brief overview of the subcommittee's new report. And then Senator Boisvenu will provide his marks, remarks in, in French. And then we can take some questions, okay? We are here today on Indigenous Veteran Day and in the middle of Veterans Week because we are deeply concerned about the shocking rates of mental health disorders and suicide unique to our country's veterans. But we are here also to champion a promising solution, one that we are urging our government to take seriously. In recent years, we have been hearing more about the use of psychedelics to treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. The emerging evidence around this type of therapy is encouraging. Psychedelics, particularly MDMA and psilocybin, can offer an alternative for those who are facing the darkest moments of their lives and those who have tried everything else. As you can read in the subcommittee's report, psychedelic-assisted therapy can bring hope to our country's veterans. Those who choose to defend our country with honor often return from conflict zones to face a difficult reality here at home, 10 to 15% struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, and the suicide rates are even more alarming. For male veterans, the suicide rate is 50% higher than the general population. For women, it is 200% higher. And for men under the age of 25, it is 250% higher. These stats are disturbing, but they don't tell the whole story. They don't paint a picture of the pain and suffering these veterans face. A few brave veterans shared their experiences with the subcommittee. Kelsey Sharon described how she was diagnosed with PTSD after she turned home from Afghanistan. She tried 11 different medications and every type of therapy that Veteran Affairs Canada could offer. She was told that she would never work again. At just 21 years old, she thought her life was over. But then she started psychedelic-assisted therapy, and it was the only thing that worked for her. She said it was the only reason she is still here today. We also heard from U.S. Marine Corps veteran named Nigel McCurry, 
He lived through horrible experiences in Iraq. But coming home, he said, was the worst part of his life until he discovered MDMA-assisted uh, psychotherapy. Today, he no longer relies on psychedelics or traditional pharmaceutical drugs. These stories were difficult to hear, but the subcommittee hopes they will spur immediate government action in support of our veterans. That is why our report makes only one recommendation, but an urgent one. We are calling on the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to immediately launch and fund a large-scale research program into psychedelic-assisted therapy for veterans. Our veterans sacrifice so much they can't afford to wait any longer. So I will now turn it over to Senator Boisvenu to provide more details in French, and thank you very much. Okay. So that's his statement. That's enough. This is uh, French after that, and then they'll take some questions. But we won't hang in there for that amount of time. Has anyone read Brave New World? Aldous Huxley? Is anyone, does anyone even know what I'm talking about? Does anyone know what Soma is in that story? Anyone ever hear of MK Ultra? Inquiring minds want to know. At least this one does. And my mind is clear. No marijuana, no LSD, no ecstasy, no alcohol. Clarity. What a concept. Whereas Robin Williams said, reality. What a concept. Greetings, brave mavericks. Our quest for truth continues. We go beyond fake news. Together we expose propaganda. Together we pull others out of rabbit holes. We are maverick thinkers. We are all unique individuals, individuals, defenders of individual rights and freedoms, credible, trusted, grounded in reality. Maverick News, Maverick News. Defending free speech, free speech, speech. Donate at freedomreporters.com. Do it now. Tomorrow may be too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Maverick News. The world is watching. We're going to jump around just a little bit with the stories tonight. We won't stick with the healthcare file. We'll move over because I think this is a higher profile. Maybe, I don't know. I just want to do this story next. And brace yourself. This one is maybe going to be disturbing for some people. So just letting you know in advance. No graphic images. But this is a story about a nurse or a funeral home, rather, where they found 189. Brace yourselves. And you know what I'm going to tell you. 
189 decomposing bodies. This was in Colorado. So these bodies obviously improperly stored. The governor and has ended up declaring a local disaster emergency, called in the FBI for assistance. And then today, the funeral home owners, John and Carrie Halford, were arrested in Wagner, Oklahoma. That coming from the district attorney, Michael J. Allen of Colorado's 4th Judicial District. So this husband and wife have been arrested on um, suspicion of abuse of a corpse, theft, money laundering, and forgery. They're being held on $2 million cash bond and are going through the extradition process to Colorado. Needless to say, the authorities are calling this case shocking. And I have to echo that. This is horrific. And it's odd that within the last month or so, we've had several stories kind of in this vein. Oh, what a poor choice of words. I apologize. That was not intentional. Um, so the name of this funeral home was the Return to Nature Funeral Home in Colorado Springs. And so last month, nearby residents reported smelling a foul odor coming from the building, which had been kind of closed up. And the Fremont County Sheriff's Office got a warrant to enter the property and found the decomposing bodies. So initially, the report was 115 bodies found, then revised now to 189. And they were in such bad condition that a lot of these bodies have been identified. They've needed to identify these through DNA. And 110 of the bodies so far have been positively identified using that method. Oh, we have a we have a clip from police. We'll let that roll for you right now. stored in the Return to Nature Funeral Home at 31 Werner Drive in Penrose, Colorado. Due to the magnitude of this situation, my office requested assistance from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to utilize their resources. Fremont County deputies and the Fremont County coroner, state and federal officers were late into the evening last night to determine the scope of this scene. Without providing too much detail to avoid further victimizing these families, the air of the funeral home where the bodies were improperly stored was horrific. To give you an idea of the scope of this search, the area to be searched is over 2,500 square feet. With regard to the investigation, there have been no arrests to date and we don't want to speculate about arrests or possible charges at this time. We're focusing on our Although that has been updated now, and, and as you, I told you, the um, owners have now been arrested. The 11th Judicial District Attorney's Office and the U.S. Attorney's Office on all aspects of this investigation, along with our state and federal partners. I'd like to close by letting the impacted families know that this case is my office's highest priority 
and we will do all within our statutory authority and assessing every resource available for the resolution that you would deserve. And that is where it stands tonight. And as I say, that clip not up to date, the arrests have been made. And they are going through the extradition process to get them back to Colorado, where they will face those charges. What else do we have tonight? We have Ivanka Trump. She testified today in the uh, trial for former President Donald Trump, $250 million civil lawsuit. This could have pretty serious consequences for Trump and his family. Trump, his sons, Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Trump Organization executives are accused by New York Attorney General Letitia James of engaging in a decade-long, what they're calling a scheme, in which they used numerous acts of what they're calling fraud and misrepresentations to inflate Trump's net worth in order to get more favorable loan terms. Now, the Attorney General has rested her case against Donald Trump. And Ivanka Trump stepped down from the witness stand today following a day of testimony that saw the proceedings grow even more heated as the afternoon wore on. Um, so at one point during her time on the stand, Trump delivered a pretty long response about working with uh, Democratic lawmakers to execute the redevelopment of the old post office in Washington, D.C. Now, that later became a Trump-owned hotel in 2016. And uh, there was some testimony today talking about how much money she had uh, profited from as a result of some of these real estate transactions. Um, and there was also some testimony today about the banks thanking the Trump family for their business and even using their business association with Trump as a promotional tool, which Trump's lawyers have uh, highlighted, saying that it's pretty clear from that that the banks really did not suffer at all. And, uh, of course, the argument on the Trump side is that the banks have to perform their own due diligence. And these values are... I guess, somewhat subjective as well, right? It all depends what's something worth, only what someone is willing to pay for it or what someone assesses it at based on market conditions. And I think that in any situation with real estate, there is uh, a lot of latitude there for interpretation or assessment. So Trump's lawyers seem to be reasonably pleased, I think, with what the testimony has been so far. But 
um, not happy with the way the judge is handling this. And there's been a lot of friction, a lot of friction in the courtroom. And I would say that's because a lot of this is political theater. That's what that is. Justin Trudeau tonight in Canada saying Canadians are hurting. Trudeau commenting on what is obviously a rising amount of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment out there. And on the other side, um, anger. And I guess you could describe it as Islamophobia on the other side. And today he's saying that uh, this is not who Can Canadians are. He was pushing today for a humanitarian pause long enough to get back on track towards a what he's calling a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. I don't know how much real moral conviction there is with the prime minister. I can only say that... Uh, I think he's probably, like always, what he always does is play politics. And on this particular file, he, I think, is having trouble navigating, finding his way forward in a manner that will do the least amount of damage to his already failing administration. He said today, we're seeing right now a rise in anti-Semitism, and this is a quote that is terrifying he goes on to say today that molotov talks about the molotov cocktails thrown at synagogues which we told you about last night horrific threats of violence targeting jewish businesses targeting jewish daycares with hate this needs to stop he said this is something that is not acceptable in canada period end of quote and period he's continued on the rise of islamophobia we're seeing across this country and around the world is also unacceptable. The expressions of hate against Muslims, against Palestinians, against anyone waving a Palestinian flag. This is unacceptable. This is not who we are as Canadians. And we got into that pretty deep last night, so we won't spend a lot more time on it right now today. We shall return to that story many times in the days ahead. I know that. Over in Australia... Communications has all been, but has all but ruled out. You know, their um, public officials have all but ruled out a cyber attack is the cause of the Optus outage. Um, so, Communications Minister Michelle Rowland says there is no information indicating the Optus outage is the result of a cyber attack. And she has been advising small businesses to keep receipts of any costs incurred. So major disruptions over there. And um, a lot of people thinking that it is a cyber attack. Communications network, cell phones. Something went wrong. Now we, you know, we had a similar kind of problem here in Canada recently, didn't we? And what did I, what have I, what have I been talking about over the last few days? We are at war. And then I mentioned here as well, and I should get you the latest update on this. 
I mean, they're over in Australia saying, we don't think it's a cyber. It probably is. But of course, I'm speculating. I have to make that very clear. That's not a definitive statement tonight. So take what I just said there and give it a little time. Don't take it as a fact because it's not a fact. Now, what do I have to tell you about tonight? There is this cyber attack, and it is confirmed as a cyber attack right here in Canada, in my neck of the woods. In fact, in this whole region, the cyber attack that took out the computer system, it was a ransomware attack for the hospitals all through this region. Now, I have a news release here. Let me find this news release. Here we go. I found it. What are they saying today? Yes. Um, I think it's fairly similar, the situation today to what it was yesterday. This affects hospitals in Windsor, Ontario, Chatham, Kent, Ontario, Sarnia, Lambton, um, Blue Water Health, Chatham, Kent, Health Alliance, Erie Shores Healthcare, Hotel Du Grace Healthcare, Windsor Regional Hospital. And the computer systems all through this this area uh, handled by um, a private company and somehow they fell victim to this cyber attack this ransomware attack and they're saying at this time due to the current impact on systems physicians may not still have access to past patient records or medical history patients, current medication lists, reports from other clinicians involved in care and pre-admission workups. So they're still going through the recovery process, trying to fix the system, beefing up security. We kind of outlined all of that again last night. And this is an ongoing thing. And I would say if you attack a hospital with a cyber attack that in itself I, I would say that's like an act of terrorism it, it what's the difference between that and potentially bombing a hospital they've had to cancel appointments someone could literally die some people could die as a result of this attack on these hospital computer systems. Whoever did this should be, if they can drill down and find out exactly who did it and, and hold them accountable, they should be held, they should definitely be held to account and they should throw the book at them. As far as I'm concerned, the problem is these things are generally, these crimes are, are executed from outside the country, making it very difficult for authorities here to go after them. It might be time, folks, for governments around the world to step up, update international laws or agreements between nations, allowing for prosecutions on these kinds of crimes across borders. Until they do that, I think we're all more vulnerable because these uh, these cyber terrorists act with immunity to laws within the countries 
that they target. This is how they do it. Not only do they get around, and we've talked about this before, not only do they get around the laws when it comes to attacking businesses and things like that, it, it also is an end, it's a way for governments here, spy agencies, to do sort of an end run around your constitutional rights to privacy. You know, if an intelligence service, say CSIS, wanted to spy, and I'm not saying they've done it, but, and it's illegal constitutionally for them to spy on you, they can just hand it off to a, a partner agency in another country. And that agency can then tap in do the spying, do the dirty work from outside the country, or they can hire hackers outside the country. And then the information gets leaked. Do you remember what happened with the Freedom Convoy and the Give, Send, Go, and it got hacked? Aubrey Cottle claimed responsibility for that. He said, I did it, I did it. He, that maniacal video that he posted online where he looked like some crazed young video gamer. And he was screaming, bragging about having done it. And what happened to that data? All the information about the donors was leaked. Oh, leaked. Made available to the public, all that confidential information. And what did they do with it? What, what, what happened with that? Police services, security services, the government, they got, then they got a hold of it. And what happened to some people? They were canceled. People, some people lost their jobs because they donated 50 bucks to the Freedom Convoy. Now you ask yourself in that situation, do you think that the person who hacked in and got that information and then just smeared it all over the internet? Do you think that happened because the person who did it just was having fun or had some personal issue with the freedom count? No, I don't think so. Read between the lines and you can figure pretty easily who it was that probably inspired We'll use that word, inspired the hack. Think about it. That's the way it's done. Rights, yeah, you've got them. And sometimes government, sometimes people from other countries, entities, other governments do their very best to work their way around your rights. Don't go away. More to come right after this.
Maverick News. The world is watching. Okay, who is Metacago? What is Metacago? Um, Metacago, pharmaceutical company, manufacturing. And Metacago received, I believe it was $173 million from the federal government. So after 24 years in operation, this Quebec-based drug manufacturer, which apparently had produced a Canadian COVID-19 vaccine and other plant-based drugs, they closed. Announced they were they're closing. And this was back in was it February? So their parent company, Mitsubishi Chemical Group. They said that they were going to shut down Metacago, headquartered in Quebec City in due course. They began operating in Quebec back in 1999. They described the company as one of few manufacturers in the world with the ability to develop both vaccines and monoclonal antibody treatments. Which, of course, some in the medical establishment are giving high praise and have high hopes for and it with regard to preventing and treating a broad range of diseases, including cancers, Crohn's disease, arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and of course, the big one, COVID-19. So last year, Health Canada approved Metacago's plant-based COVID-19 vaccine, Covifens, for adults aged 18 to 64, the vaccine was meant to be administered in two doses, and clinical trials showed it was 71% effective, or so they said. Of course, we kind of know how all of that has been working out in terms of <laughs> accurate reporting on whether things are safe uh, and or effective. Um, in any event, in... Uh, October of 2020, before the vaccine was approved, the federal government did strike a deal with the company to buy up to 76 million doses of the drug. And in addition to providing $173 million in funding to support the vaccine's development and the construction of a new Quebec City manufacturing plant. So they started to prepare to launch commercial scale production of the vaccine but then the parent company announced that it would cease all of its operations, citing changes to the COVID-19 vaccine landscape, global demand for COVID-19 vaccines, and Metacago's, quote, Metacago's challenges in transitioning to commercial scale production. So the company just decided that it was not viable to continue to make further investments in the commercialization of Metacago's development products and decided to just cease all of its operations at Metacago and proceed with an orderly windup of its business and operations. Oh, so that's the end of that. The mayor of Quebec City at the time just described it as a huge pity. And uh, expressed some, some regret, some concerns for the families of the people who 
work there. Well, today, there was uh, this from Todd Doherty, conservative member of parliament, who held the government to task on this during committee meeting. And this was uh, to discuss the request to undertake a study of public health agency contracts. And specifically, this contract with Medicago, $173 million. And as far as I understand it, to date, none of that money has been returned. None of it. None of that taxpayer money has been returned. Medicago just took the money and ran. And who are they to the Liberal Party? I can tell you this, that figure, who is Medicago? And who are they to the Liberal Party? I can tell you this, that they rank enough that they got into, uh, well, the 2021 Liberal Party's platform right here, uh, forward everyone, forward for everyone. Uh, and I, I, uh, I turn the reader's attention to, to, uh, to page eight, here it is right here. Um, and uh, if you can see it, if anybody can see it, um, and it's on page eight, where it says, uh, we have completed new biologics manufacturing center at the NRC, secured an agreement with Moderna to build a state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in Canada, uh, and made major domestic capacity investments with uh, Abcelera and Medicago. I mean, so big that they, they, uh, they warranted um, getting a, a shout out in and being promoted in the Liberal Party's 2021 campaign platform. And, and Mr. Speaker, that's just a cursory search. I'm sure when we do uh, more digging, we're going to find either uh, connections to the Trudeau Foundation or to Mr. Trudeau or Prime Minister Trudeau himself. This is shocking. You know, I fight day and night for investments in mental health. Speaker, it, it is is so frustrating for me. How much, how many beds for recovery could that money have built? You know, for three weeks, four weeks, we've been pushing to do something in the opioid, uh, about the opioid epidemic in this country. The hundreds of millions of dollars that this government has wastefully spent. How many vaccines were created? Not one. And where is this, com uh, this company now? Close the doors, sunnier climbs. Crazy, crazy that you give $173 million or more to a company that you get squat out of. What else did they get out of this? They must've got something, was that a payoff or something? I mean, again, they're, they're close enough to be listed in, in the Liberal Party's 2021 platform. Page eight, for those that are. And I need to correct myself because I, I did misspeak. This, that clip posted by Doherty, November 6th. People feeding me this information, throwing it into the lineup here. And I want to be accurate because I said today, but I misspoke. And that is a clip from November 6th. But that story is still ongoing and it will continue to haunt the prime minister, 
no question. Um, and moving on, in other news tonight, what else do we have? The Dutch, the Dutch government has supplied parts for F-35 fighter jets to Israel, even though some civil servants in that country have been expressing concerns that uh, the bombardment of the Gaza Strip may well breach international law. Israel has been ordering components and uh, they've been delivering. And there are concerns that what's going on might constitute war crimes. Nevertheless, the government, the Dutch government, uh, continues to send the parts. And this is making headlines over there. It is something I think that should be highlighted as well here. Now, all of that being said, I think we need to be aware that there is an information war component to all of this. And with all of the uh, rhetoric on both sides ramped right up, accusations flying from both sides of war crimes being committed, it's important that we try to deal in facts as much as we possibly can. And I'm not passing judgment on this at this stage, one way or the other, until we see real solid evidence, not just material posted online. I'm not going to condemn or convict anyone of anything in public here on this program until I know exactly what the facts are. And uh, once we have verifiable information of actual war crimes, you know, then we can call that out. And in some cases, I already have. Now, does that mean that Countries should not be supplying parts to, say, Israel. I don't know, man. This is uh, this is something. These are ethical questions that politicians, bureaucrats, they'll need to grapple with that, come to their own conclusions, and then do what they feel is right, knowing full well that if they make a wrong choice, an immoral choice, they may well be held accountable down the road. And what did I say? I said several times since the beginning of this war that there may well be Nuremberg 2.0. And if that happens, it would, it would be because of war crimes committed during these wars right now. And from what I'm seeing, if there's any justice in this world at all, if it gets that far, if warranted, I would say that you should probably have people from both sides hauled in front of that, what do you call it, tribunal? But international law is a uh, I don't know if you really get true justice through international courts because it seems to me often the people held accountable end up being the people on the losing side of a conflict.
Don't go away. More ahead right after this. The New World Order. Government Overreach. The Great Reset. Mainstream Media Lies. Now more than ever, independent voices are needed. Donate now at freedomreporters.com. That's freedomreporters.com. Maverick News. The antivirus program for your mind. the storm for truth is on our side maverick news the world is watching and back to canada we come all the way over to the west and the province of alberta the Alberta government is all set. They're going to dismantle the province's health care provider as part of a series of restructuring initiatives. And this is going to change its role across multiple new delivery agencies. Danielle Smith, the premier of Alberta, taking some pretty bold steps out there. In Alberta on the healthcare front. And uh, the plan is for Alberta Health Services to shift its primary purpose from being the sole healthcare provider to focusing on acute care and continuing care. It would share that role with two of four new organizations an acute care agency that oversees the delivery of hospital care, urgent care centers, cancer care, and emergency medical services. There would also be a primary care agency that is going to coordinate primary health care services and provide transparent provincial oversight. A continuing care agency is going to oversee providers, manage contracts for service delivery, but won't be an operator of continuing care. And there's also going to be a mental health and addiction agency, and that will allow apparently Albertans to access what they're calling a full continuum of recovery oriented supports. And so this is all supposed to roll out this spring with other organizations established over a period of months through the fall of next year. And then those agencies would report to another new agency. So it's a whole new system really. And we have, uh, we have the premier queued up here. Let's go pick up Daniel everyone. Smith I'm now. pleased to be here uh, with Adriana Lagrange, Minister of Health, Dan Williams, Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Jason Nixon, Minister of Seniors, Community and Social Services, Ed Stelmack, Board Chair of Covenant Health, Cody McIntyre, President of Alberta Professional Firefighters and Paramedics Association, Elliot Davis, Vice President, Alberta Professional Firefighters and Paramedics Association, Sean Turleson, President and CEO of Shepherd's Care Foundation. Dr. Les Scheeler, who is an anesthesiologist, Dr. Susan Prendergast, who is president of the Nurse Practitioner Association of Alberta, Alicia 
Lobe, uh, the membership director of the Alberta Association of Nurses, Kevin Ferguson, mayor of the town of Padoka, and Sandy Edmonston, board member of Alberta Health Services. Welcome to a new day for healthcare in Alberta. From the very beginning of our government's mandate, improving healthcare at every level has been the top of our list of priorities. And with delays affecting the whole system, the urgency of the challenge can't be overstated. Wait times for life-saving surgeries, routine care, and mental health treatment are far too long. Alberta's health system isn't working the way it should and the way Albertans deserve. And fixing it is critically important to improving Albertans' quality of life. And improvements must begin with Alberta Health Services, the largest provincially integrated health system in the country. While all Albertans can and should be proud of our frontline professionals, the structure behind them is not setting them up for success. We have seen unacceptable wait times for surgeries and emergency rooms. We've seen constant service disruptions and temporary closures at rural hospitals, EMS code reds and response times not meeting targets. Right now, thousands of Albertans do not have access to a primary care provider, and so many of our seniors are waiting in hospital wards for access to continuing care longer than in any other province. We can point to the ledgers that show our healthcare spending per person is about the same as the national average and in BC and Ontario, and yet some of our outcomes aren't better and are not improving. For example, Albertans are waiting longer for hip and knee replacements. Only 38% of hip replacements and 27% of knee replacements in our province meet the national wait time benchmarks. And the time Albertans remain in hospital, even after they no longer need hospital care, is four to five days longer than the national average because they lack the supports to return home. The human cost to both patients and their family is immeasurable. I'm not satisfied with the current state of our affairs. And I know Albertans aren't satisfied either. Right after I became Premier, we launched our healthcare action plan and I directed Dr. John Cowell to make immediate changes to deliver some quick and needed results. We knew that those immediate actions would not fix the entire healthcare system, but we needed to take steps forward. Thanks to that work, we've seen some improvements, but not enough. I've spoken with Albertans one-on-one -on -one, and they've made this report, this point to us repeatedly in very personal ways. They've told me about surgeries postponed or canceled, innovative treatments that are unavailable in our province because of holdups and approvals, and entire days lost to waiting in crowded emergency rooms near a suffering loved one. Some emergency departments have closed their doors because of a lack of staff, which is the exact opposite of why emergency departments exist in the first place. Faults in the healthcare system cause needless pain and anxiety at Albertans' most vulnerable times, and they put tremendous strain on the frontline professionals who are working every day to help sick and suffering Albertans. When I spoke with frontline health workers, I began to get a sense of how we could truly make a difference, a long-term lasting difference for Albertans' healthcare. Without a doubt, we have the best healthcare workers in the country. They're smart, skilled, endlessly compassionate people who understand their patients and their practice. And yet when they're, they are sidelined when it comes to decision making, even though they understand the problems and see obvious solutions, they try their best, but they end up being stalled and frustrated by a system that lacks focused leadership and governance. The current health system in our province limits government's ability to provide system-wide oversight on behalf of the people of Alberta. It also limits our ability to set priorities and require accountability for meeting them. The current Alberta healthcare system is one that has forgotten who should be at the center of its existence, patients and the healthcare experts who look after them. We need to bring Alberta's healthcare system back to its mission of delivering the healthcare Albertans need when and where they need it. 
We've had recent and extensive consultations with healthcare partners and communities uh, during important projects like modernizing Alberta's primary healthcare system. We've also engaged on areas of emergency medical services, mental health and addiction, continuing care and healthcare system sustainability. Everything we've heard has helped to inform the development of our plan, a plan that I'm pleased to introduce today. This is all about refocusing our healthcare system to prioritize patients and empower healthcare workers. Starting today, we're creating an integrated provincial healthcare delivery system that concentrates on four priority areas, primary care, acute care, continuing care, and mental health and addiction. We believe that by creating specialized organizations within one provincial system, we will enable each organization to look after one area of healthcare only and avoid the scattered and uncoordinated approach of the more rigid centralized structure that exists now. These changes will apply province-wide to avoid the regional fragmentation that existed prior to the current system. This focus will help the new organizations better manage performance and promote expertise in areas be faster and more responsive to issues, recognize innovative solutions, and make space for local decision-making and advice. The newly refocused system will be more accountable, ensuring consistent quality care across the province. Patient outcomes will be better monitored as a result. And all of this will result in a better system, not only for patients, but also for healthcare workers. Frontline healthcare workers will be a large part of organizations that are dedicated to their area of practice, providing undivided attention to issues and giving workers room to innovate and apply solutions with fewer delays due to bureaucracy. Through this process, though this process begins today, we understand that restructuring takes time and dedicated effort. This is why we have named a transition team to guide the process of forming these organizations and Minister Adriana Lagrange will have details on these changes and the team that will oversee the transition of AHS. But I want to be clear about this plan, about what it is and what it is not. I made a public health care guarantee to Albertans. That means no one will ever pay out of pocket for a, a visit to a doctor or for hospital services. And that is not changing. These reforms have nothing to do with privatization. They are also not about cuts. Alberta's government will continue to grow the healthcare workforce, and we anticipate that there'll be no job losses to HS staff working in frontline positions who are de directly delivering patient care. In fact, our government knows that Alberta needs more healthcare workers, and so we'll continue to recruit and train more of them. This isn't change for the sake of change. This is a matter of redirecting Alberta's healthcare system, making it patient-centered, seamless, and effective. Okay. And so you can see that they are trying to make some big changes out there in Alberta, the Canadian healthcare system, strained waiting lists, unacceptable to, I think, the vast majority of Canadians. I've pointed out here in my hometown that a lot of people, including myself, don't even have a family doctor. And then they introduced this telehealth system where you go in, you don't actually see a doctor, you see a nurse, and then you speak to a doctor on a video screen over like a Zoom call. The doctor is usually in Toronto, and you are in this medium-sized city that I live in, and they can't even, they couldn't even keep those things running. They seem to be fairly efficient, in my view, these walk-in clinics where you go in and it's like a telehealth walk-in clinic. If you don't have a family doctor, you end up in these places. They couldn't even keep those things operating. The, um, the, the One of the main ones here in town, 
two of them actually shut down. I think there's only one left to serve the entire region here, this entire area. One walk-in clinic. And you don't even see a real doctor in there. It's a it's a guy on the screen. It's you're talking over a, a call. Seems to me you could almost do that stuff at home. But maybe that's coming. Beware, my American friends, if you ask for socialized health care, you might just get it. And what about Bill Gates? And his activity in the healthcare field, you know, he says that healthcare could be offered more efficiently through the use of artificial intelligence. It was earlier this year that uh, he said that he thought AI will revolutionary, revolutionize rather healthcare for the world's poorest. And he's, he called on, he called, he's calling Artificial intelligence, the most important advance in technology since the development of computers and smartphones. And I know a lot of people are concerned about this. And he says that advances in AI are a way to improve productivity in the workplace, help reduce global preventable deaths among children, and improve inequity in American education by bettering students' math skills. I'm not so sure. <laughs> Seems to me that AI might make people dependent on the keyboard and uh, diminish the amount of thinking people end up doing. It's sort of like GPS systems, right? In your car, you used to re remember how to get to places and you'd have the map sort of in your head. And now if I find that if you, if I use the GPS, I don't pay as much attention to where I'm going, so I don't really remember where it is I've driven. I become dependent on the GPS over time. But he says artificial intelligence is going to reduce the workflow on healthcare workers, completing tasks for them like filing insurance claims and drafting notes from doctor's visits. And I can certainly see that increasing, improving efficiencies. I can also see potentially more mistakes. As a result, sometimes AI does not get it completely right, but it's getting better all the time. It's a system that is designed to learn, right? Gates also sees artificial intelligence as a way to reduce the death rate for young children. He says 5 million children under the age of five die every year, especially in poor countries where artificial intelligence could help patients determine whether they need to seek treatment and artificial intelligence linked devices. Like ultrasound machines could help healthcare workers be more productive as well. So he goes on about this, did go on about it earlier this year. And today in Brussels, what do we have going on? The International, or inter, International Artificial Intelligence Summit. And they're talking about everything related to artificial intelligence there. And all the cool kids are taking part, all of the big corporations, including Amazon, Microsoft, of course. They're there, IBM, and many others. And so this International Artificial Intelligence Summit 
um, facilitating discussions on this very important subject. And it's good that people are talking about it because whether we like it or not, it's coming, it's here. And it's already changing things dramatically. I've noticed big changes even online, especially on the political scene because of artificial intelligence used to produce videos, memes, body doubles. <laughs> and so they'll be talking about how to regulate artificial intelligence moving forward at this summit. What needs to be done to protect people? Because there are people, me included, worried that artificial intelligence might somehow become, I don't know, sentient almost, or even, and kill us. <laughs> Determining maybe down the road that these human beings are like insects. It might be best if the world didn't have these carbon-based life forms sucking up oxygen and expelling carbon. Why bother to tax them? Just eliminate them. Time for the Terminator. Not scary or anything, just saying. Let's dip into the opening remarks at this Artificial Intelligence Summit, shall we? And pick this up. And again, this is AI Conference 2023 in Brussels. Opening remarks, here we go. How they're grappling with this fast paced world of artificial intelligence. And in just a couple of minutes, we'll be inviting up on stage the Irish Minister for Trade, Enterprise and Jobs, Simon Coveney. A warm welcome to yourself. Great to see you here with us this morning, Simon Coveney. Ireland's of course, it is no secret that it is difference. one of your tech hubs. It will probably have no problem um, investing in AI, attracting a lot of talent in the next couple of decades. So we're very excited as well to hear from you, Minister. But first, as you might know, Spain is currently presiding over the European Union and has set itself the challenge of trying to conclude these talks on the AI Act before the end of its term in December. So we wanted to get the view from Spain and from the Deputy Prime Minister and the Minister in charge of digitalization, that's Nadia Calvino. So we sent Calvino, so we sent our Euronews' Jaime Velasquez to sit down with her over at Madrid and you can take a look now at what she had to say. Spain has taken uh, the initiative about Europe's digitalization. So tell me, what is your vision on AI and how do you think it will impact the economy and also the labor markets? Well, indeed, when we took office uh, in 2018, that's five years ago, we already knew that digitalization would be one of the key levers to drive growth, prosperity and modernization of our country. Of course, we didn't know at the time that uh, everything would be accelerated exponentially. And we didn't know that we would have the European funds, the next generation EU recovery plan that would allow us to undertake a very, very ambitious reform and investment program. Time is of the essence. Uh, digitalization is accelerating and we need to make sure that we have the right framework to ensure that it does support innovation and brings prosperity and growth and good quality jobs, seizing all the opportunities. 
without falling in the risks and uh, and uh, being able to also face the challenges which are derived from this technological revolution, this industrial revolution that is taking place around us right now. Artificial intelligence will bring a lot of uh, great opportunities in almost every field, but there's also a lot of concerns on how this can impact the people's privacy or even their individual and social rights. So. Okay, framework can impact the people's privacy or even their individual and social rights. So what uh, citizens want to know is what you politicians can do to uh, get the most out of artificial intelligence uh, uh, without having uh, the unwanted consequences, the dangers of AI. Ensuring that the digitalization process uh, preserves our rights and, and values that we can ensure safety, trust and confidence in citizens and, and corporations and countries, the good functioning of our democracies. That is a top priority for us. And that's why when we adopted our artificial intelligence strategy back in 2020, in parallel, we adopted a charter of digital rights, which has inspired the work which is going on at European level, but also in the Latin American countries and at global level in the United Nations. And I think it is of the, it's essential that we ensure that this uh, technological revolution, this new industrial, this new digital economy that is in the making, uh, it leads to a more prosperous, but also a fair society, avoiding biases and ensuring inclusiveness for all citizens throughout the country. That is our, our great challenge. But the good news is that there have been major agreements and breakthroughs in the last couple of weeks. So the governance framework and the appropriate regulatory framework is also being made around us as we speak. Mm -hmm. How do you think is the best way to regulate artificial intelligence? Should it be uh, through regulations made by individual states or should it be done at the multinational level? Should it be uh, industry guidelines or maybe through a dedicated agency? For example, uh, Spain was one of the first countries to create an especially dedicated uh, agency for AI. What is your take on that? Well, it would be great if self-regulation would work, but what we are seeing these days is that it doesn't. I mean, the Data Protection Agency at European level is already having to, to take measures with regards to privacy. Uh, the G7 has put in place a voluntary uh, guiding or guidelines uh, that, that could pave the way and, and mark the, uh, the direction. The UN has established uh, an, an advisory body to try to come up with the appropriate regulation at global level. And by the way, uh, Spain is co-chairing this new advisory body, which shows the leadership of our country in the area of artificial intelligence. So there are many ongoing initiatives which show that at the end of the day, uh, we have to put up measures which work at national level, at European level, and at global level. It is very clear that we cannot ensure that artificial intelligence goes at the right direction just using our national mechanisms and, and rules because it is a global challenge, uh, one where I would hope that all countries are aligned to ensure that the outcome leads to better societies, more resilient economies, a better future. 
I guess one of the main challenges, where, given the uh, global nature of uh, artificial intelligence development, is how to foster uh, cooperation and collaboration between countries that have uh, very diverse uh, cultural backgrounds, social backgrounds, and even uh, different priorities. How can we do that? Well, indeed, it is very challenging because it's a technological race taking place in the private sector and also between large jurisdictions, large countries, the superpowers in, in the world. Uh, also because there are very different views as to who, who owns the data, how to protect the privacy of citizens, what is the right balance between security and privacy. So it is challenging, but it is also unavoidable. And so I think it's very good that initiatives are ongoing at the EUN level and also that uh, certain uh, fora, uh, such as the Bletchley Park, uh, a very symbolic uh, place also, that's where Alan Turing cracked the Nazi code. And this meeting has brought together Chinese and US representatives. So I think we have to continue bringing forward and, and supporting initiatives that ensure that all the world's large mega powers in the area of artificial intelligence see eye to eye, understand each other, and cooperate to have a, a better governance at, at global level. Actually, we succeeded in doing it in the area of uh, nuclear energy, and we are confronted with a similar challenge when we're talking about artificial intelligence, so we have to continue to work until we succeed. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for being with us uh, today. I don't know if you would like to add something or, or say to uh, people that are watching us right now from uh, Brussels in the uh, International AI Summit you are opening, by the way. Well, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. The digitalization process is unstoppable, but the future is not written. So it is in our hand to take now the right decisions and set up the right regulatory and governance framework to ensure that technological developments lead to more resilient, more stable societies, more inclusive and better economies also. Uh, it is in our hands and fora and discussions such as the one that I am honored to open today are contributing to shaping this better world. So I wish you all the best in these very interesting discussions and look forward to seeing you in person soon. Well, thank okay. you very much to Minister Cavigno there for sharing her thoughts with us and officially inaugurating and opening our conference here in Brussels. And thanks as well to Jaume Valles-West, Euronews' correspondent over in Madrid. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, we said we'd be getting the view from Ireland, from Dublin. And I'd now like to invite uh, the Irish Minister for Jobs, uh, Trade and Enterprise, Simon Coveney, to join me here up on stage uh, to share a few words. First, perhaps, with your views on how you're currently looking at the future of AI, what's at your, on your desk uh, on a daily basis. And um, you can speak here from the podium or here, wherever you like, and then I might ask you a couple of questions. Okay, Great. welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, morning, everybody. Um, well, enough. So we'll just, because uh, they're going to be at it for hours. So on the healthcare front, at this point, I would take a robo-doctor rather than no doctor at all. I suppose, but what's the difference between that and looking it up online? 
And what if the robo doc kills you or gives you medication that ends up killing you? Who's liable? You can't sue the robo doc. Do you sue the programmer? I guess you have to start digging into it on the legal front and see who was negligent or what information was faulty in the information chain and who was responsible for injecting that information into the information in the chain that led to your death. But if you're dead, I suppose it doesn't matter. Just saying. And what was that movie? Was it Logan's Run? Maybe it was a different movie where they had, or maybe it was um, Total Recall with Arnold. Probably appropriate that it would have been Total Recall, where the robots go crazy with the lasers and it's going to end up killing the guy. Anyway, the future is here. The future has arrived. We're talking about artificial intelligence tonight. We're talking about psychedelics to help people who are having trouble deal with reality or some surreal version of reality because of the trauma they've been subjected to because of the wars that they've been subjected to. So we are prepared to put people into a, an altered state using psychedelic drugs as a form of therapy and Somehow that helps them. I don't understand. But again, I'm old. I'm old fashioned in my thinking. I'm not so old that I'm actually afraid of AI, but I'm pretty afraid of the drugs because that really is your head. I'm a little bit afraid of social media these days because I've been talking a lot about how governments of all stripes and all around the world are using social media to get into your noggin and screw with your mind. And like I said, psychedelic psychotherapy brought to you by the same people who brought you medical assistance in dying. What could go wrong? It's interesting how as well, earlier in the broadcast, the senator was referring to, what was his words? He was referring to this as a large-scale research project using our veterans. And psychedelic drugs. Something about that just sets off alarm bells for me. Have we not seen through history how got the governments, our governments, have used veterans, military personnel before to conduct research, sometimes without their knowledge? But because it's out in the open... And they've been working to change public attitudes about this. And yes, they have been working to change perception, attitude. They've been doing it using mass media. I've taken note over the last number of years in the way it has been handled as subject matter on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in particular, and specifically 
a lot on radio. A lot of chatter about that. Reports, call-in shows, special reports, pro-psychedelic use for this purpose. But again, here we go. Let's do a large-scale research project. One recommendation only from those senators. Only one. Let's get to work on a large-scale research project on our veterans who are already suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the horrors they've been subjected to in the battle, on battlefields. So let's give them psychedelics and see how it goes. Some people think it's okay. Some people are embracing this. A lot of people are like, yeah, let's do that. I'm not so eager. I'm not that enthusiastic about it. I really, I'm not. I just, my opinion, you guys can have yours. We've had people on the program talking about the benefits of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, various drugs. Me, I don't touch any of it. I keep my head clear. I think it's important. I want to think straight. I want to be here in the moment, experiencing the world as it is. In my reality, from my perspective, seeing everything the way I see it naturally, with no enhancement, no distortions. You take a psychedelic, whatever it is you're experiencing, it is, I'm sorry, well, I... I have to step step back. I have to dial that back. Is it real? That in itself becomes a real question, doesn't it? What is real? Perception is reality. So if I perceive something to be scary, it's scary because it is scary to me. If I perceive something to be warm, it's warm bright, it's bright, because that's the way I interpret it using my senses. If your senses are altered and you, you, you experience that same stimulus in the same environment, but you now you, you, you have this altered state, your perception of it is distorted, but is that distortion then an actual reality? I suppose that it's still real because it's happening to you, but is it? But it's not really real naturally. It's a, a distorted reality that becomes a construct within your mind. And I would also say that these drugs make people malleable, susceptible to suggestion. They make, depending on the drug, it can make you paranoid. And I think... You combine that with very specific targeting of social media, using social media to target people with messaging, videos, video content, with carefully crafted narratives, carefully crafted language, 
designed to disarm psychologically and then inject ideas and even triggers. And you combine that with the use of drugs, no longer do they even need to conduct MK Ultra style experiments on human beings with the test subject sitting in front of them. They can do it over the internet remotely without you even realizing you're a test subject because you've taken the drugs willingly yourself. The same drugs they used in those MK Ultra mind control experiments at the research facility in Montreal, a real thing actually happened, might even still be going on, but there's an actual lawsuit still ongoing in Canada right now where the U.S. government has been granted immunity from prosecution, even though they were direct, they were directly involved in the experiments on Canadian soil, but no, can't, they're not legally liable because they're a foreign government. That's a legal matter. But if they were doing that to test subjects in person back in the 60s and 70s, and I think even the 80s, and then, and using these drugs as one of the catalysts for the process, LSD, psilocybin, and now they're talking about doing this with veterans, I, it makes me very uneasy. Now, microdosing, it's so it's good for you and whatever, man. I'm just looking back at the history. I've never touched the stuff. I don't ever intend to. I want my head clear. And I just want what's best for veterans. Now, if you can't handle reality because you've been subjected to so much trauma, then I don't know, man. Like, maybe that's the, the best thing is to let people escape for a while. Maybe it is. Who am I to say or judge? This is just my personal opinion. And I really do believe in freedom, freedom of choice. So again, who am I to say that you should not have access to this kind of treatment? On the flip side of that, when I talk about freedom, I wonder about drugs. You know, there have been studies that show some of these drugs do have addictive properties. And these drugs also do distort your perception. And if you have distorted perceptions, if you become addicted in particular, if you become addicted, are you then free? I would say no. Because now you're a slave to the drug. You're a slave to whomever it is that is administering these drugs to you or providing them for you. Drugs are not freedom. Drugs, in particular, addictive drugs are trap. Can be. They can also be a very humane thing, especially if someone's in a lot of pain. You need drugs for surgeries. It becomes kind of an ethical question, doesn't it? Complicated. I just don't trust the government with this stuff, and I don't trust the pharmaceutical industries with this stuff. Not after we've seen what we've seen happen in the past. And in particular, with soldiers and veterans, it seems like our government has been far too 
willing and even eager to use military personnel as guinea pigs for things. Shows how some people just don't value human life. I find it very, very disturbing. And it seems like we're rushing headlong into this now. And people who otherwise would be very cautious and wary of government seem to be the ones most eager to embrace it. It all seems to depend on, I don't know what, attitudes toward chemicals to ingest into your bodies. If you are inclined, you can support the show by donating at freedomreporters.com. Or you can also support us at maverickdonations.com. That's the Give, Send, Go account. Freedomreporters.com. That takes you to the PayPal account. And uh, thank you to uh, those of you who have donated in the past. And yes, we did have a couple of donations yesterday. And yes, I'm shipping those shirts out. Thank you very much for the support. Greatly, greatly appreciated. That helps immensely. Immensely. Truly, truly appreciate it. And uh, please like, share, subscribe on Facebook, on YouTube. Please subscribe. We're running on two Facebook, there are two YouTube channels tonight. And of course, we're over on Rumble. We really need the support over on Rumble because that's the free speech platform. That's where we're really growing. We're picking up more and more subscribers all the time. And uh, truly, truly appreciate the support there as well. Um, Bitcoin, you know, we had Bitcoin Bob, Bitcoin Ben. <laughs> Somebody called him Bob the other day. And that stuck in my head, but it's Bitcoin Ben. He was on, he was talking about cryptocurrencies, right? Then I got to thinking about it. You know, I, I, I have sort of an interest in economics, studied economics. And I really was really thinking about Bitcoin. I own a little bit of Bitcoin. And I just thought I'd, I'd dip in and take a look now at what the Bitcoin price is. And this is being, cryptocurrencies being, are being promoted by some as a solution to the current economic system we have right now, the monetary system that we have currently. And here's the price of Bitcoin today. $35,404.57 per Bitcoin. That's U.S. And, you know, Bitcoin has been on another roll, gaining a lot of ground. It's uh, gained a lot even just, uh, I think, today, up 115% over the past year. So here it is. A year year ago today, 14500 $48.33. And today, $35,604.57. That's a huge increase. You've more than doubled your money. That's just a buy and hold. 
But, you know, that shows that this stuff does not perform the same as a regular currency. It, uh, this needs more study. And some people seem like they're ready to toss aside the current financial system that we have, the current monetary system, and replace it with something like Bitcoin, pursue that instead. But it is very volatile, isn't it? And people, you know, Bitcoin Ben was on here and he was saying, you know, that this is, you know, maybe the answer to even inflation. I don't want to put words in his mouth, so maybe I'm mis misquoting him. But a lot of people say that it's actually a hedge against inflation. I certainly can potentially see that, but it is risky because we've seen Bitcoin drop in price, go up in price. It's been a fairly steady increase. But as I was thinking about Bitcoin, you know, they say there's a finite amount of it. There are only, what, 21 million or something that ultimately will be mined electronically. But, you know, Bitcoin is almost like everything else these days. It's, it's sort of upside down. And what do I mean by that? Bitcoin gets divided up. It's like a dollar bill. Say it's a dollar bill. And then you can break that dollar bill down into smaller denominations. A 50 cent piece, you could break it into quarters. You could break it into dimes, nickels, pennies. Bitcoin can be broken down, I think, even more. And that's why you can still get in on Bitcoin. You don't have to buy an entire Bitcoin. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. I was laying in bed thinking about this overnight. And so if someone's telling you that Bitcoin isn't susceptible to inflation, I would argue just look at the graph. This is a reflection of inflation. This is inflationary currency in itself. This makes it more and more difficult to actually get in and buy Bitcoin. And in addition to that, it's almost like a pyramid scheme in a way. And I don't mean to say that in a sort of a, a scam way, although some would argue that that's what it is. It's, it's also, and I've been pretty, I've actually been pretty bullish on Bitcoin in the past. But I also see potential risks, threats here. Because it's the people, the early adopters who got in early, who really ended up with the most. And that is also sort of the way the, uh, you know, the, the current monetary system works with regard to inflation. When the governments print money, the people who get a hold of that money, when they inject it into the system first, the people who get that money first, they get the most value out of it. It isn't until that money flows through the system and changes hands multiple, multiple, multiple times through those economic linkages that inflation starts to kick in. And then the person who gets it later in the chain, the money is worth less and less and less because prices begin to rise as those economic price signals are realized through the system, through the free market, and that bring that forces prices up, uh, up because there's more money in the system, which makes the money worth less, you see. More of something makes it worth less. You put more money into the system. Once the system realizes, if people realize there's more money flowing around, the money's worth less, prices of goods and services goes up. With Bitcoin, we're seeing 
the price of money go up. The people who got in early, they cash in. The people who get in late, they have to pay more to get in. And then you say, well, it's not inflationary in the same way that traditional currencies or traditional fiat currencies are because the government can just print an infinite amount of money, which is actually what mon modern monetary theory is. Really, it's like just keep printing and printing and printing and printing. Print as much as you need. But if you print too much, you get too much inflation too quickly and people's spending power is diminished and now the value of labor is diminished. People stop working because it's no longer worth it. And they don't save money. It's just all these different economic impacts. But we see what I'm saying with Bitcoin is it's upside down. There's only ever going to be 21 million of these things. I think it's 21 million ever that they can ever mine. But you can go in the opposite direction. You can digitally break that coin down into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller denominations at the other side of that decimal point, couldn't you? You could go to infinity and break that Bitcoin digitally into tinier and tinier and tinier and tinier, and tinier smaller denominations. Now, I'm not sure. I got to check that. That was just a thought that I had. And that in itself could result in inflationary pressures. Plus, you have all these other cryptocurrencies, which are not Bitcoin, but you have Ethereum, Dogecoin, you name it. There's a whole bunch of them out there. And there are more coming online all the time. And so in the cryptocurrency environment, you have really an infinite supply of cryptocurrencies available. Now, an individual you know, is divided into different kinds of cryptos. And so each one of those is going to have its own value. But we haven't really explored the full impact of these digital currencies. Not at all. It's not really clear how they're going to end up impacting our economy and our society in the long run. This is still very, very early. And if we get what some people are predicting, which is a collapse of the U.S. dollar internationally, we might find out real quick exactly what Bitcoin is likely to do, because I think a lot of people are very ready to adopt this stuff and, uh, and introduce other cryptocurrencies as well. Anyway, these are just some things I was just kicking around in my own little mind overnight. And I just thought I'd share some of those thoughts with you. But man, if, I don't know, that is, that is in itself a reflection, I think, of inflation. To go from $14,000 to $35,000 in value for a single Bitcoin in just one year. Would you describe that as inflation? Or is that reverse inflation? Because the value of the Bitcoin increased in a, in a way that's like uh, deflation, isn't it? For anybody who is holding, saving. And in fact, I guess you could argue that that is actually the opposite of inflation because in an inflationary environment, people do not save their money. They spend it. If you have high, high inflation, they will spend the money as quickly as they get it because it's physical goods that end up holding actual value, 
not the currency itself. So people stop saving for the future with cash or currency, and they buy things like gold or pianos, <laughs> tangible assets, houses, real estate. They put it into things which appear to be going up in value in relative terms. Nothing actually increases in value at all. It just appears to be worth more because the costs more and more and more dollars to buy that item. With this In this case, with Bitcoin, because the value of the Bitcoin has gone up, it represents really a tangible physical asset, even though it isn't. It has increased in price relative to the cost of fiat currency. So against fiat currency, it's costing you tw over twice as much in fiat currency to buy Bitcoin today than it did a year ago. So that is absolutely a hedge against inflation. And more than that, it becomes an investment just by holding on to it. But that isn't really what currency is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a medium of exchange. But that's also why people aren't trading in it that much because they're more inclined to just hold on to it, aren't they? Just hoard it or hodl. Just buy and hold. Don't spend it. Hold on to it. Use it as a hedge against inflation. That might be one of the reasons we're not seeing uh, more adoption as an alternative means of exchange in the marketplace. I, uh, we have, uh, these are all very interesting questions. We might have to get Bitcoin Ben or maybe even somebody else on here to talk more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and what we can expect in the future. But that's the price of Bitcoin tonight, over 35 grand. It has recovered a lot in, uh, in terms of price over the past year because it was up pretty high a while ago and then it crashed and now it's kind of gone back up. And over the long term, we've seen a steady increase. A reflection, I think, of the perception that there is a finite amount of it out there to be mined over time. And so eventually you get to a place where there just ain't no more to be mined. Then you're going to have to break it up, keep continue breaking it up into smaller and smaller portions. Enough of that. It is now 7.48 p.m., and with that being said, I am actually going to wrap things up a little bit early tonight so that I can get to work on some other things here in the studio. Way behind another work. We've covered most, well, pretty much all the news stories of the big ones, I think, today. And uh, let me just check in here at the news wire that we have. Just see if there's anything breaking coming in that I need to let you guys know about before we sign off this evening. Here we go. Hmm. Hmm. Some international news. We're seeing that um, Yemen is claiming to have shot down an MQ-9 U.S. Reaper drone. Um, 
And we're seeing also that there is uh, some new diplomatic fallout with India. This all related to the Sikh separatist movement. And we know that there was the killing of that Sikh here in Canada. The Canadian government came out, Justin Trudeau, talking about the Indian government potentially being involved in that killing. The Indian government looking at these Khalistani separatists living in Canada with dual citizenship being protected on Canadian soil uh, because of their Canadian citizenship. Indian government doesn't like it. It's put a lot of strain on the relations between Trudeau and the Indian government. India, of course, aligned with those other BRICS nations, interestingly enough. And we are obviously in the middle of a third world war. Whether people care to acknowledge it or not, it is true. So we are at war with these BRICS nations. It's just not a conventional kind of world war. But tonight, six are being advised by the leader of the six separatist movement not to travel on Air India flights due to potentially life-threatening consequences. In other words, they're worried they're worried about uh, the government targeting Khalistani separatists characterized or identified by the Indian government as terrorists. An interesting thing. Let me just see what this is here related to that. Hello, everyone. I'm Elon Musk. Yeah, Today, no, you're not. That was that was a fake Elon Musk coming out of my phone there. An AI-generated Elon Musk. Uh, totally appropriate, given the subject matter we've covered tonight. Elon Musk, fake. 100% fake. There's a body double for you. Anyway, so you've been alerted to that story about... Um, the Khalistani separatists, the ongoing tensions there. And if you're a Khalistani separatist, the advice from your leader this evening is don't get on an Air India flight. The Indian government's got its eyes on you. Maybe a bunch of eyes. Interesting approach in dealing with separatists in Canada. We deal with separatists in a whole different way, don't we? we? We let separatists run for office. We let separatists sit in the House of Commons as members of parliament and become part of our government. While at the same time, they advocate for splitting away, breaking away from Canada, the Bloc Québécois, separatists. In India, they deal with them in a whole different way. And as much as some people want to tear this country down, I got to say, that's one of the things I think that actually makes Canada great. You can disagree with the government so much that you actually sit there as part of the government and say, we need to tear this government down. We want to split it up. And I'm sit sitting here in the House of Commons collecting a paycheck as a member of parliament, as a member of the government saying, I want to dismantle this whole system. <laughs> and I'm not signing that constitution. Because I want to decouple from the monarchy. 
diversity certainly is a challenge. Folks, I'll be back tomorrow night. Same bat time, same bat station, 6 p.m. Eastern time. <laughs> uh, what a strange country we live in. What a strange country indeed. See you guys tomorrow. On the flip side. This has been a Maverick Multimedia Productions.